Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. In this contributor episode, Matt talks about theme, Dan talks about starting a Kickstarter, and I answer some questions with Bez Miller and Dr. Wicks. But before that, I have the winner of our listener feedback survey contest who gets a copy of Battlestar Galactica. And the winner is Justin Baldwin Bonnie. So, Justin, thanks for filling out the survey and entering, and I will get in touch with you to send the game out as soon as possible. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. This is Matt Shoemaker from Hit Him With a Shoe, and this month I would like to talk to you about theme. So theme is important to everybody, or just about everyone at least. Uh, it's one of my favorite aspects of gaming, and what really helps pull me into a game as a player. Oftentimes when I see a new game come out, what draws me into it is not necessarily the mechanics or who designed it, but what that game is about. What is it that I'm going to experience? What story am I going to live through as I play in this adventure? Now I know that's not how it goes for everybody, but for me, theme is definitely one of, if not the most important aspect as a player. Now, as a designer, this leaks over as well. I would be what you call a theme-first designer as opposed to a mechanics-first designer. Now, the difference between those, of course, is that I like to think of what is the scenario that I want to put people through, what type of environment and world am I trying to draw them into, and then figure out what mechanics can best simulate that experience that I'm trying to create for a player. A mechanics-first designer typically works more with figuring out what uh, they want a uh, game to function as and then may pick a theme out later that fits those mechanics or at least makes sense with them. Now, there's nothing wrong with either of these approaches. Both of them are quite viable, um, but the first one, theme first, is how I prefer to work. I personally see theme as a vehicle for creativity through simulation. Uh, with theme, I can pick a scenario, um, like let's say uh, labor rights, and then figure out what mechanics I need to fit the environment of that theme, and then kind of bring that to life for players. Now, there's a lot of ways you can work with theme, and in fact, the way that I got started with it was by modifying games that already fit my theme. This really let me stretch my legs as a designer when I first began, and it also made sure that I was able to fit things. So when I first got started game designing, this was about six or seven years ago now, um, one of my very first projects was taking the Settlers of America Trails to Rails game by Mayfair and modifying it to fit many types of archival document sources that we had at my job at the time at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. So uh, being a uh, theme-first designer and looking at uh, westward expansion and railways, uh, this game really kind of just spoke to me and had a lot of ways to fit to it. Now, if you've played Settlers of Catan before, and I'm sure most of you have, then this game uh, shouldn't be too much of a surprise to you. If you basically take Settlers of Catan and add up some uh, expansion and uh, more road building into it and the railway theme, you've got the game. So what I did was went through several of our 19th century documents and found uh, different areas to explore that I could modify the game to. 
one of the first ones that I did was take uh, the labor rights movements. So besides taking sorts of pamphlets and other materials and adding those to the game to increase the theme and more flavor to it, I also added an economy and labor phase to the game, modified the victory conditions, and added a track for labor satisfaction to go throughout the game. This allowed players to further explore the theme of rails in the game by adding in the component of what it was like to manage your workers through the game and adjusting for their own satisfaction based on uh, how much, how many wages you gave them, how much, how hard you worked them, whether you brought in laborers from overseas and other conditions. Another scenario I took for this was the Long Depression. Long Depression was a period that took place in the 19th century uh, and, and greatly affected the economies of the railways. So to accommodate this in the theme, I added a fixed game length. I added in several disasters that were options that could come up. Most of these were economic disasters, not natural disasters. And finally, I added in player elimination, which is something that normally is not in the game. And now, while some of these things are unbalancing the original intent of the game of the creators, to me it was most important to add them because it really made the theme come alive and got the point across that I was trying to have players experience through the game. Another mod that I did to this game was add a corporate abuse module. For this, I had asymmetrical players where one of them was far more powerful than the others in an economic sense. And I also added a luck element to the game that allowed players to influence each other um, differently that kind of spoke to how um, corporations were able to, based on circumstance, uh, influence each other and the politicians and the markets of the time. Final modification I did to this game was Western Expansion. This was the easiest one to do. I basically just changed the victory conditions so that players uh, would get more points for expanding westward and completing essentially the longest road campaign uh, in this game by going from the east-west to the, uh, sorry, the east coast to the west coast first. So you can get a lot of mileage out of games both by experimenting with existing games and creating your own with theme. Uh, I highly recommend that you, if, especially if you're newer to design, work with modifying an existing game to fit your theme better. I find this really spurs on my creativity to take on something that another designer has spent time with and really kind of tweak it more to, to specifically focus on aspects of that theme that I'm really either curious about as a player or I want my players that I'm designing for to experience. So if you're curious about more of this, you can check out my latest project, Bee Lives We Will Only Know Summer. It is a very theme-heavy game about the lives of bees, as you probably guessed from the title. Uh, it's a worker placement resource management game uh, that uses those two mechanics to really kind of put people in the shoes of a hive of bees to see what they're like. If you want to know more about that project or me, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at BeeLivesGame. And you can also check out my website at hitemwithashoe.com. That's E-M, not T-H-E-M. Thanks, and I'll see you next month. Hey everyone, Dan Letzring here of Letterman Games, and I am happy to be doing this contributor episode for the Board Game Workshop. Um, today, Chris asked me to do a 
contributor episode and I was trying to think about what I could talk about. And I am one week away from launching my Neverland rescue campaign. So I thought it'd be good to be talking about the prep work I'm doing for that. Um, you know, really for this one, it's been a crazy week. I have been trying to get a lot of things done for it. And, um, you know, I just thought it'd be fun to talk about kind of what I do with everything and how I get it done uh, to get the most eyes on the campaign and um, the images before I launch. Um, obviously, you want to build a community and people who are interested to back at the day it launches. And so what I try to do is get the most eyes on things prior to launching so people are really excited for it. Um, so part of what I'm doing right now is I'm scrambling to get the campaign page finally done. I want to be able to share the preview link so people can start hitting the heart on the top corner to get reminded when it launches. And I don't want to really share it before it's ready, obviously. So we're working on finishing images for that right now. But what I'm also doing is when we complete things for it, we share those images and videos in other places, right? Um, so we finished some 3D renders of all the game art and uh, dropped them on the page. And in doing that, I immediately go to Board Game Geek and post the images on the game page for the game on Board Game Geek uh, to get some eyes on it there. I post the images on my website so that they're linked in a gallery on the game page for my website because I want my site to be pretty full with my description for the game. So if anyone searches on my site for it, um, they'll get as much information as possible. Then what I've been doing after I get those images there is I share them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well in all my groups and my following so my community can see it. Um, and then the same thing with the video. So we just finished the Kickstarter video. We're going to be uploading that tonight to the game page. And then I'll be loading it on YouTube and sharing the YouTube link for that this week as well. Um, and again, it's more whenever you get pieces finished, you want to share them in as many venues as possible to get the more eyes on it. Um, and sometimes people see an image for a game and they're partially interested, but they don't check it out. But after they see two or three and they get really drawn in, that's when they really... Um, get sucked into wanting to, to find out more about your game. So the more you can share that people see different aspects of it, uh, the better off you're going to be. Once the page is really all built up, um, then I need to share that everywhere. So I, I have the preview link almost done, and I'm trying to get it done soon because we're starting a giveaway with everything board games. And one of the entries we always do is visit the preview page. Again, this is to get people to see it. If they want to back it, they can click the link to get reminded when it launches. Um, but I need a complete page with everything there for this. So we need it done before we launch so that everyone who goes the week before will actually see it. Um, then once the uh, preview link is also done, we want to post that in the Facebook launch calendar group. Uh, there's a, a launch calendar group on Facebook for people checking out games that are launching soon. And so we need to link it there so that everyone can see it and get interested on Facebook. Um, I have people already following along on Board Game Geek and subscribing to the game. So I want to share the link with an official launch date there. Um, and really, again, all of these is to just drive interest into the campaign. This has been a really fun one. We have some amazing art, and I would have loved to have been sharing it a week or two ago, too. And we're just, you know, we were a little behind on it. And so that's fine, and we're, we're still going to, you know, be on target, and everything's working smoothly for launching. But um, obviously, the sooner you can share these things, the better. And so uh, that's about all I have for the week before. Um, again, now we're also what I'm going to be doing tonight is I'm going to be contacting a lot of reviewers. I need to make sure all the reviewers who have the game just, I, I like to send them a reminder. They get a lot of requests from people and 
I just send a reminder saying, hey, just so you remember, uh, we're launching on Tuesday, May 8th. And that just reminds them that, um, you know, that it, just to not get confused with all the dates they get from all these people, they get you know, multiple games all launching sometimes the same week. And it's easy to to get mixed up. I even forget sometimes when I'm working on one game, things I've done with it. And so I can imagine them getting just repeated requests for different games, how confusing it can get and how hard it can be to remember what day that a game is launching. It's not their game. They're not as deep into it as you are. So it's nice to send a reminder to just be like, hey, um, we're launching on this date. And if you could get it to me a day or two early, sometimes they'll send you a preview link. That way you can go in and find a good quote and pull that for your campaign as well as to get that on the campaign page. Um, so that's another thing I have to do is get in touch with the reviewers there. I've got to go through all the rewards and double check that everything is good. So when I launched my last campaign for the Dino Dude Ranch expansion, the Hatchlings expansion, I did not realize that one of my reward tiers had shipping messed up. So instead of having U.S. shipping included and um, the European Union shipping as an add-on, it did European Union shipping free and U.S. as a, more money than it should have been. And so this was a problem because a couple of people backed it. So what I had to do was limit the number of people who could back at that tier so no one else could back at it. And then I had to create a new tier with the correct values and then message everyone to get them to switch over to the right uh, reward here. And so that was a mess and I don't want that to happen again. Um, I think when quickly double scanning it, I thought everything was right when I didn't realize that the things were switched. And so I got to go through basically all those fine details, the reward tiers, um, the risks and challenges I've got in there, make sure that all my links are functional on the page. So you post a lot of links in there, right? I connect the print and play, I connect the rule book, I connect my company's Twitter, Facebook, uh, Neverland Rescue Board Game Geek page, they're all linked on the page, but I can make sure all the links direct A where I want them to and B that they're full in there so that um, basically I just go through and click every link on my page and make sure everything directs you to the proper locations. Again, people want information. The last thing you want to have to do when you're already scrambling to launch a campaign is make sure everything is right on it. Um, then I'm going to start building ads for my website. Um, I want to link the Kickstarter page from my website so that if anyone goes to my website, they get linked to the Kickstarter page. So I'm gonna start building those ads. Luckily we have other ads planned as well. So we can kind of use the same banner ads for everything. Uh, but this is just yet yeah, another thing that we have to do uh, to get ready for it. Basically after that, I'm leaving on Thursday for Proto Atlanta. Um, and so really I need everything done by Thursday because I'm leaving from Thursday to Sunday and then I launch on Tuesday. Um, so the last thing I want is on Monday to come to come back on Sunday and then have Monday to frantically run around like a, a very busy, busy person who can't keep their mind straight and trying to get the page done. So I need the page done and double checked before I even leave for Atlanta, which is a week early. Um, I, and although you try and get things done always as soon as possible and you try not to put them off to the last minute, you always make edits up to the last minute. It's just kind of the nature of it is you're always working on it until you hit that go button. Um, but I think, like I said, that we're in great shape. We have everything lined up. The page is mostly done now. We've got a lot of links on there and all the images are pretty much built. And so we are just kind of cruising into this final stretch and getting everything ready. Um, it's times like this though, I really wish that, you know, there were a team of people all working on the page with me just because, uh, 
it's a lot of work. Uh, but I do have a lot of great uh, people I work with who are building some of these images for me. I have uh, three different graphic designers I've been working with, and each one contributes to different images or one worked on the video. And they've been fantastic about getting things done um, just in a way that I never could. So without them, I would be actually completely lost. Uh, but uh, like I said, that, that's all done and we're ready to go. The reviewers have all played the game and I think the reviews should all be ready and in my hands within the next week and we are ready to launch. So if you have any questions about prepping a launch, be sure to reach out to me. Uh, please don't do it in the next week because I'm going to be very busy. But anytime after that, I am happy to talk about everything I go through when leading up to it. But just know that there are so many places that you can get your game out there so that people know about it before you launch. The last thing you want to do is launch and have no one even know that you have this game and that it's launching. Uh, you want them to know day one what you're launching, that they're excited for it, and that they're ready to back. So uh, again, please shoot me any questions if you have them. And thanks for checking out this contributor episode. Have a good one and happy gaming. Bye. I'm your host, Chris Anderson, and we're going to answer some listener questions. I'm here with Miller, Bez, and Dr. Wicks. So, the first question I have is from CM Perry, Fright Hope Futurist on Twitter, or at BH Futurist. He asks, when there is hidden information in a game, what are some ways to keep it from being just blind guessing? Uh, I think this question fits in pretty well with what we were just talking about in our full episode about simultaneous action selection. So what are what are some ways that you can give enough information that people have something to go on? Any thoughts? Asymmetry of desires again? Like just if one thing is a lot more valuable, I mean it just even contextually more valuable, like then you'll be able to think, okay, this person's going after that. So having some some available aspects so you can kind of intuit what a player should want to do, even if you don't know exactly what they're going to do. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, even if it's just, okay, this is um, the obvious move to do, and then you get into that whole, as Dave Serlin calls it, the Omi of, okay, this is what they should want to do, but then they know that I know that this is what they should do. So then you get into the whole poison in the cup thing and then it becomes, I guess, um, yeah. But then at that point, maybe it becomes too obfuscated if you start going down too many layers and you've got to be either a poker player or play it completely randomly, which is what he's trying to avoid. Sorry, I'll let someone else take this. I'm doing a terrible job at answering this. Uh, hello, this is Austin from Dr. Wits. Uh, one thing that might be able to help is if all the players in the game have an understanding of the range of options. So if there's you know, a deck of cards, they know that, that there's you know four suits of between uh, one and... Uh, you know, one in ten, and then king, queen, king, king. So, like, just have player. So, if players go into it, even though information is hidden, if as long as they kind of have a sense of the range of that information that's in the game, they can make better informed decisions as that information is revealed, or however you end up handling it. 
Yeah, that's a good point. That's like it's a especially something you can get into with auction games if some players don't understand the approximate value of things they're bidding on. You can really ruin the game completely with not having that restricted range of information. Miller, anything to add? You could always take notes if your game group allows you to. I, I, I know that's kind of taboo in a lot of game groups is taking notes, but it, it, if you know what's been playing, then again, it's the, well, I know there's 52 cards in the deck. I know that the Ace of Hearts has been played, so that's out. The Queen of Clubs has been played, so that's out. So if you can, if you can kind of know what's in the deck and know what has been played and what hasn't been played and what you have because what you have is extremely important and people forget that this is what i have so obviously nobody else can have this um then you should be able to make more informed decisions again not 100 percent because it's hidden but a little bit more informed decisions just based off of what you have what you know has been played by your opponents and Hopefully they let you take notes. If not, then just try to keep track as best as possible. Well, as a designer, you can make it part of the game. So in Clue and some other deduction games, you you get a pad that you get to mark some things off, which gives you, it helps restrict your decision space, which helps it from being total blind guessing. All right, moving on to next question from Brian Compter, who is at Scrapyard Armory on Twitter. How do you keep yourself motivated to see a game to the finish line? Uh, this is this is something I've struggled with a lot. I I love to get games 80, sometimes 85% done and then move on to something much more interesting. So what are what are some tips and tricks you have for pushing to actually complete a game? I'd say as somebody who who sits in playtest groups a lot is feedback uh, a lot of feedback. There is no such thing as too much feedback when designing a game, I have found, because I have found designers will come back to me and be like, hey, I changed this, and then I'll go play it again. Or, hey, I you know, I took, I, I, I listened to what you said, but you're the minority, uh, so I didn't change that, which is also great to hear as a, as a playtest, you know, playtester gives feedback. But continuously playtesting your game, even if you get it to 85%, you can still play test it or even if you just put it up for a while that can also help because then you can kind of give your mind a break it's like going through like a, a boot camp for a um a, cer- a certification that you know you 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 spend all day in class and then you take a nap when you get home that way your brain can kind of catch back up with what you did so play testing put it on the shelf for a little while and then come back to it because you'll see it with new eyes uh, yeah, I can completely second everything that Andrew is saying because, you know, the, the reason why we don't end up finishing it is because, you know, we, we've been working on it for too long by ourselves. You know, we've been working on it too long by ourselves. The concept to ourselves has gotten older, has gotten staler. But if you can take it back out into the world, get it bounced around by other different people, that will help invigorate things. Also, can also agree that... Uh, conversely, the best uh, one way to help finish one game is to actually start a second game, but not a third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, um, because you know you have that time away, and then you come on back to the one that you were working on before with those fresh eyes. That does help. Yeah, I was going to say something exactly the same. It because it's all about enthusiasm and having passion for it, because that's what's going to 
you know, with any creative endeavor, you do need to have some sort of enthusiasm for actually getting this thing done. And whether that's generated by, you know, people having already paid you for the thing and then you need to finish it because you've already done it on Kickstarter or whether that's someone who's paying you a wage or, you know, more if you're just starting out, it's just, well, when it was 10% complete, you should have been playtesting it already. And then when it, by the time it's 85% complete, you can start taking it to conventions, not just Protospiel or Unpub, but also just normal conventions, maybe smaller local conventions. You can show it to a few people. And if people actually enjoy it and get excited about it and just say, hey, this is cool, and then that will hopefully run up, rub off on you. And you want to get it made because you want to make these people happy. And at the end of the day, that's why most of us are making games, because you want to make games and things that people can have fun with. So if you go out there and people are already excited to make, to play or finish thing, then that's what's really going to give you the enthusiasm. So yeah, try to um, get some other people, show it to them, and hopefully their enthusiasm will inject you with passion and rekindle you those are all great points the um other people showing interest in your design like that's something that really helps me there's at least like there's like been a couple of designs that i kind of lost interest in and other people that had play tested them earlier would like ran into me at a convention and like oh how was that game going and i hadn't touched it in like eight months but the fact that they asked just how it was going that rekindled my interest in it so i started working on it again, which was, you know, my fifth game on the stack. So that wasn't a great thing for time management, but it was, uh, it does really help you keep on track and keep at it, which is important. All right. Our final question. And it's a big one. What do you predict 2018 will be known for in regards to board game design? What will we see more of less of, and what will be completely unique in this upcoming year? And this is from Dustin Dowdle, who is not on Twitter, as far as I know. Um, so this is a little later in the year. This question is from a while ago. But um, I'm thinking that we're going to... So last, the middle of last year was when there was a huge explosion of roll and rights. A lot of talk about it. A lot of companies picking them up. So I think we're going to start to see a lot more of those getting released now that they've been developed and or kickstarted. So I think... Uh, probably going to have that wave of roll and rights coming through soon. Um, any Anything else anyone can think of coming up? I know that uh, Dice Masters has just recently announced they're going to an LCG format. Um, I can honestly see, probably not this year, but probably in a couple of years down the line, that a lot more of the CCGs will go to more of an LCG format. But as to what's going to be big this year, we're sitting in April when we're answering this question. It's still too early to tell. We haven't even... Gamma just got done, and it's it's hard to tell what's going to be big this year and what's, you know, what the new trend will be, and we probably won't figure that out until probably Essen. At, you know, it's probably when a lot of the stuff's going to really start hitting. I'm not sure that there even is like one big thing in a given year. I mean, it's easy to look back on past years and say... Oh yeah, this was the year that Dominion came out and deck building took off, or 
oh, this was the year that legacy games really started to take off last year or whatever. But I think it's, you know, a construct of humans that we just always want a simple narrative. And there are so many different things, even within hobby gamings. You've got, um, you know, dexterity games and you've got, you know, super strategic things and you're going to have more escape games in a box. Obviously, that was a big thing last year, but you've also got all these tangential things. And I think this year it's just going to be more games getting continuing to get better and just continuing to not only improve the quality, but also broaden the diversity of games. And there's going to be all these, I mean, if there's going to be one thing I ha really had to say, it would probably be some companies are starting to downsize how many things they're doing, because some companies are starting to be aware that the market's oversaturated and are taking steps to focus on quality rather than numbers. But no, it's just, I don't think you can have one simple narrative. I think that's just oversimplifying the massive tapestry and the diversity in the gaming landscape. I mean, I, I don't I don't like playing fortune teller, so I'll just say I'm going to keep my eyes open and, and be surprised by whatever's coming down the line this year. To be a surprise, it must be a surprise. So I'm looking forward to it. So hopefully that answers your question, Dustin. No one has any idea what's happening, but we look forward to it, and there's certainly going to be much, much more because the number of games released every year has been growing. So everything you liked from last year, probably double that and add in some surprises that we don't yet know about. Well, thank you everyone for joining me for these questions. And let's just go through the list and you can give out some contact info. Austin. Uh, so Aaron and I, we are Dr. Wits. You can find us online at dr.wictz.com. You can also uh, tweet us at at D-R-W-I-C-T-Z. And of course, you can find us at Facebook at Dr. Wits Board Games. Uh, we are also ready and going to Origins. And Bez. On Twitter, I am at Stuff by Bez. On Instagram, I am Stuff by Bez. And on Facebook, you can search in the wee search bar for Stuff by Bez. And you will find me. And yeah. Aaron, anything to add to what Austin said? Hello? Well, my son's saying hello, but mainly, hello, this is Dr. Witz, and that was Dr. Witz, and if you meet us, you've met Dr. Witz. And Miller, any <laughs> contact info? <laughs> um, you can find me uh, at, on Twitter at SportsGuy3125. Um, I should really get my voiceover stuff uh, reactivated, and then I can add that later. But for now, SportsGuy3125 on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you all again for joining me and have a wonderful night. That's all for this episode. You can find show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Follow the show on Twitter at the BG Workshop, like the show on Facebook, and join the show's Facebook group to talk about episodes and game design. If you'd like to send in a question, you can email it to questions at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening. Microphone <laughs> 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 away. All right, little guy, I'll put it away. <laughs>